0: Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. Today's episode brings us to Stanford, California, where I speak with Professor Lynn Meskel about the history, politics, and future of the UNESCO World Heritage Program. Dr. Meskel is Professor of Archaeology at Stanford University. And has a long list of accolades, including being the recipient of an honorary doctorate at the American University in Rome. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. Okay, so I'm back and rested after having taken, well, 20 20 20-year-olds to Italy for a few weeks. Needless to say, I'm excited to get back in the studio recording more conversations. So keep your eyes open for new episodes that will be arriving in your podcasting app. The podcast has reached a milestone of sorts. Our 10 episodes so far have been downloaded and listened to by hundreds of listeners from around the world. Thank you very much. But if you find the show interesting... You can help spread the word by leaving a positive review on iTunes and your Apple podcasting app or in whatever podcasting app you use. Reviews are really helpful in getting more ears and eyes on the program. As a way to say thanks, I have a handful of all over the place podcast stickers that I would like to send you completely free of charge, including shipping to wherever you are in the world. I don't have very many to send, though, so um, first come, first serve. Visit allovertheplacepodcast.com forward slash stickers to sign up. And speaking of which, the All Over the Place podcast website has undergone a slight redesign. If this type of thing interests you, feel free to go check that out. And while you're there, feel free to leave a comment on one of your favorite conversations. Well, that's about it this week. So now here is Professor Lynn Meskel. Today I'm talking with Professor Lynn Meskel about her new book, A Future in Ruins, UNESCO World Heritage and the Dream of Peace. It's a great account of the history and workings of UNESCO. And although it's an academic book published by Oxford, Those interested in the subject, I think, will find it uh, accessible and definitely interesting. So, Professor Maskell, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Jeremy. I really appreciate it.
0: If you don't mind, um, I think what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about uh, your background, um, and then we can talk about the book and the discussion of the development of UNESCO and its history and the complications, and then... Maybe we can spend a few moments talking about um, your personal thoughts on UNESCO and maybe some of the complications with overtourism and things like that, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. Well, let's start. I guess, um, can you, how how would you describe yourself and your career up to this point? Like, who are you? What do you do? All of that. (laughs)
1: Uh, so first of all, you should know that I'm Australian, and uh, I studied in Australia, and then uh, did my PhD in archaeology at Cambridge on Egyptian archaeology, so I was familiar with uh, field archaeology in the Middle East. I then went to, to Oxford and then to Columbia to teach, and, and now at Stanford. And I'm, I'm broadly trained as an archaeologist. I've worked in the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and um, in Australia and the Pacific. And I also did some ethnographic work. I sort of changed a little uh, halfway through my career to do ethnographic work in South Africa, uh, particularly around natural and cultural heritage. And so being trained in England, you are trained as an archaeologist. But in the U.S., archaeology is housed within anthropology programs. So when I got to Colombia, I started to work across disciplines. So the work that you will Reflected in the book is really a very archaeological take done through um, ethnographic methods. So, a lot of interviewing and participant observation as well as archival work. So, it's very interdisciplinary. And I am, I think most people would see, a rather unusual archaeologist having worked in so many parts of the world. I have a new project in India at the moment. Uh, So, I'm very much driven by ideas and politics, um, social life, rather than strictly being object focused. Although I have done a lot of that work too. i worked for 14 years in Turkey on a project. So we, I'm a little unorthodox, you might say.
0: Mm. I think that's part of the, the draw of the book, it, that it's interdisciplinary in nature. You talk about, as you said, politics, a little bit about the history, which I just found uh, fascinating and didn't know about. You also dive into um, kind of social contemporary issues um, that affect tourism. And so it's kind of wide reaching. And um, it was surprising. I thought it would be more focused on uh, the archaeology, but pleasantly surprised that it was so broad. So um, talking about this book now, uh, how would you... We'll go go into the weeds here in a moment, but how would you kind of describe the overall argument or thesis of the book?
1: Well, it is a history of uh, the World Heritage Program, how it developed uh, at UNESCO. The 1972 convention is the sort of flagship, and I was drawn to this project uh, after being on sabbatical in Oxford, talking to colleagues. And I I thought working on UNESCO as an archaeologist, since so many sites uh, on the World Heritage list, that very famous list that every country wants to get onto, are archaeological sites. And uh, I said to a colleague, you know, that would be a great dissertation for somebody. And Mm -hmm. his response was, well, yes, because archaeology is so central to that list, and yet archaeologists know nothing About the workings and really have very little contact with UNESCO. So it's publicly a very high profile um, place for archaeology in the world. You know, if you think of uh, Angkor Wat, for example, Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, there's many, Stonehenge, there's many, many sites, over a thousand. uh, But archaeologists themselves are no longer really interested. And there's a huge industry in critiquing UNESCO, but without very little knowledge of the background or workings of the organization. And I wanted to set that right. Uh, it's too big for a dissertation in some <laughs> ways. Uh, and it took um, eight years, I guess. And it's fascinating. And you can't just do it as an archaeologist. You have to be someone who's interested in history mm-hmm. and ethnography and politics because these sites are not uh, divorced from contemporary settings. Of course, they're not locked in the past. They're, they're caught up with, All sorts of war and conflict and tension, border tensions, economic imperatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's just not possible to look at a site and describe it anymore. We are, and also archaeologists, are enmeshed in those politics. And it's not just in the Middle East. It's it's everywhere.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the surprising part of the book is how much, uh, you know, getting on that list is embroiled in politics and financial disputes and and back dealings. So we'll get into that uh, in a little bit, but mm-hmm. yeah, sure. that was really kind of eye opening uh, in many in many ways. Um,
1: As it was for me, I, mm-hmm. I first attended a meeting of the World Heritage Committee that happened to be in Paris. I was there in Paris doing another book. And uh, I was very starry-eyed uh, to go into something that was a United Nations organisation to sit in the observer row, and uh, and watch these countries, uh, you know, debating issues and trying to have their sites inscribed, talking about conservation. And I remember uh, really getting very emotional when, I think it was Burkina Faso, but an African nation stood up and and took the floor and spoke. And I thought, you know, this really is the dream of the United Nations unfolding in front of me. But then (laughs) by day three, I had realized that, you know, what a country like that said and who they supported and who they may have challenged would then affect things like trade partnerships, mm. their economic subsidies might be affected. I heard all sorts of things about veiled threats and very overt threats, uh, aid being cut, visas being denied. You know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, of course, this wonderful gathering of nations.
0: Political and bureaucratic, it sounds like, on, on many levels. Mm-hmm. So you wrote in in the preface of the book, and I'm going to quote your book here. Um, you wrote that if we are to understand world heritage, we have to acknowledge the array of institutional and international actors that ostensibly quote make heritage unquote. Mm. And so mm. we get before we get into the complications of international mm. bureaucracy and po- poli- you know politicking. Um, can you explain how an agency like UNESCO could could possibly make heritage instead Mm. of something like simply acknowledging heritage?
1: Mm. Sure. Well, if you think about it just generally, um, not everything that happened uh, in history becomes heritage. You know, it's a very selective process. So the world is full of material remnants of the past, Mm -hmm. and we... We don't save everything. We can't save everything. We value sites and places differently, different monuments. Something is deemed, uh, you know, a national monument. Other things are overlooked, denied, bulldozed and constructed over. That, mm-hmm. happens, that happens everywhere, and it's a very subjective process. I mean, we've been schooled, I think, particularly in the West, to think of certain monuments as sort of undeniable heritage, that we should care about them. But then other things can be, um, that are equally old, can be deemed um, worthless. They might be part of history, but they're not going to be conserved, preserved, nominated to lists, and so on. So, you know, one country can bulldoze a temple to make way for something else. Um, another another can enshrine that on the World Heritage List. So it's up to uh, states organizations, bureaucracies, um, local actors can push for things. And then, you know, you get right to the top, to the supranational, to organizations like UNESCO that deem something worthy of heritage. And there have been huge controversies. I remember a couple of years ago when uh, an industrial site in France was inscribed on the World Heritage List, and it was literally a flag heap, <laughs> a mound of uh, the sort of detritus of mining. Mm-hmm. And um, and there was international outrage in the media that how could this pyramid be compared to the Great Pyramids of Giza, also on the World Heritage List. So that's an example of, of where nations strategically use and position sites to deem them a particular heritage of the nation, a patrimony of the nation, rather than um, seeing them as perhaps you know remnants of a past industrial age that we need to clean up and remove.
0: Mm. Can you give us the shorthand on how uh, a site can get on the the list? And, and by the way, is that um, the terminology for getting on the list is to be inscribed? Is that correct?
1: That's right. That's right. How, yes.
0: How does is, how does a site become inscribed? Is there like a short version of the answer? <laughs>
1: it's a. It is a long. It is a long process. Um, and it had become a very costly process. If I can say in the early days when sites like the pyramids or the Acropolis were nominated and then inscribed, you know, it's on one piece of paper and somebody will write, well, of course, this should be on the list. It's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, those dossiers, they call nomination dossiers, are thousands of pages long and take thousands, you know, perhaps, you know, I've heard over a million dollars to prepare consultants are involved and so on. But the, the short answer, I hope, is that uh, countries have to prepare a, a site a nomination dossier for the tentative list first, mm-hmm. and uh, they get feedback and so on. But it has to be a nationally sort of recognized protected site to begin with. It's on that tentative list. They can work with UNESCO and get advice there, also with their advisory bodies. and. They then have to decide which sites on that list to go forward now because there are so many sites and UNESCO is under severe financial uh, pressure since the U.S. withdrawal, financial Mm -hmm. withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Um, They can only do, I think, one cultural, one natural site per year, which has great consternation. But they put those four sites forward, the dossier. Then UNESCO organises site visits, assessments. There are desk assessments. Uh, You know, it's a long process, and and there's a lot of back and forth. There are factual errors that need to be corrected. Um, And then if 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 the file goes forward, if it's deemed a a complete file, um, that site will be discussed at the annual World Heritage Meetings, and a committee of 21 states parties decide, debate. It's very um, volatile sometimes, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of lobbying, as we could talk about later. And then a decision is made whether to inscribe it, not to inscribe it, which is, you know, very very debatable, and uh, or other measures which are to refer it back that it needs more work and so on. And that these are long and costly processes, as you can imagine. And that's why we have European nations and wealthy nations dominating that list. Why, you know, countries from the developing world, for example, just cannot afford. Uh, to be involved in that long and arduous and expensive process.
0: So is it is it all about money? I mean, is that, is that why uh, kind of the Atlantic world, North America and Europe mm. have some 45, 47, yes. nearly 50% yes. of all sites? Is that well, purely financial? Yes,
1: it, no, it's not purely financial. It's also a sort of Eurocentric bias that we need or, you know, more and more, um, you know, cathedrals and palaces and, uh, you know, those sorts of monuments on the list. It's also because of the expertise uh, by Western conservation experts that both prepare and evaluate the dossiers. It is about financial resources. It's about political will. It's about how many members of your party that you can send to the meetings to lobby for you. It's Fulfilling the criteria that were Western oriented to begin with. There's many, many reasons for that uh, dominance. And they're not all admirable, right. let us say. And it continues. You know, there was a, a, a major investigation into this and an attempt to address the global imbalance in 1994 called the Global Strategy, which tried to balance out this over representation of. Of European sites. I mean, there's sites, you know, of course we all want to visit as tourists and that's part of it, mm-hmm. but that strategy has failed. You know, and, and all the research that uh, my colleagues and I have done has shown, as, as well as other scholars, has shown that that has really failed. And you look at the proposed list this year and it's again, European countries uh, are just continue to nominate. Nobody, nobody is... Um, holding back somewhat to try and ameliorate that bias, you might say. Mm-hmm. It's very much self-interest.
0: So to what extent is this, what's happening now, I, I guess, um, part of the legacy of UNESCO in general? I mean, it's, it's founding mission, it's founding mm-hmm. idea. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about how UNESCO formed and what context it formed and how it, I guess, Became what it is now,
1: right? So yes. So to understand where we are now, it is imperative, particularly in terms of that Eurocentric bias I just mentioned, Mm to to remember that this is an initiative of the post-war, the immediate post-war European world. Uh, Of course, there was the League of Nations uh, before UNESCO, somewhat similar, that had cultural and educational aims that. You know, whilst uh, it wasn't simply the colonial nations running it, um, they were very much in charge, and that certainly carried through to to UNESCO. N- it's not surprising that UNESCO is based in in Paris. Its first director general was was British, um, but you know, it started in late 1945 when it was only 44 nations really um, came together. Under the the aegis of the United Nations to form UNESCO, and it was it was really about education and science first. The the culture, the sea in UNESCO, was added later. And there was um, a meeting um, of sort of educational ministers in London uh, before the before the end of the war to talk about how to rebuild these nations using education, and that was, I think, instrumental as the sort of uh, uh, platform to which uh, UNESCO referred, that it, it should be educational to reform the mind so that we don't have the same sorts of global conflict in the future. So it was very uh, utopian. It was very much based on education. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, as I said, culture came came next, but it was the victors, the, you know, the imminent victors of the war that uh, were really at the helm of mm-hmm. the organization. And you know, uh, there are historians like Ma- Mark Mazower who've written very uh, effectively how UNESCO was all about, you know, the end game of empire and it was another vehicle for Britain and perhaps France, but Britain to, to hold on to its colonies. Mm. And it wasn't about liberation, it wasn't about the liberal developmentalism of the United States. And there was a tussle between whether an American or, or a British director general would be the first. And there were consequences for that. But it was certainly in the minds of its, um, its early leaders meant to be a way of, again, kind of controlling or, you know, holding on to empire mm-hmm. and a kind of civilizing mission, if you like. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, that soon changed when, uh, other nations moved towards independence, and those initial, you know, forty-four members had to expand, and there were challenges from those nations.
0: Mm-hmm. So, when, yeah, I'm sorry. When 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 did UNESCO become UNESCO? Like when when, when does when was that C added? Was that added in, in the in the late forties? Under the, um, under the supervision of uh, Julian Huxley, or... I think
1: it was in the, I think it uh, was in in those sort of early discussions. Okay. So it was founded as UNESCO. I see. Um, yes, but but initially, I think when those countries met meant to discuss what sort of organisation they wanted for the reconstruction of of a post war world, uh, initially the emphasis was on education and science. That meeting in London of the educational ministers from countries that were in exile, plus the Allied forces, mm-hmm. that was the, that was the spearhead. But remember too, I I hark back to the League of Nations and culture and museums was part of that, and it was absolutely felt that that it wasn't just education alone. That these cultural institutions, remember, so many had been destroyed, looted, you know, pillaged um, during during the, the Second World War. So there was an idea of saving these masterpieces, restoring them and then restoring people's spirit with that and again this sort of utopian promise for the future that there could be uh, a mm-hmm. cultural unity amongst peoples through through these educational and and cultural vehicles.
0: Is that what you mean in the book is that what you mean by one worldism?
1: Yes, and it's all, but that's also tied to... Of course, it was a one world that was entirely sort of European in, in focus. And what you notice in the archives, whether it's the League or UNESCO's early days, um, and also meetings of archaeologists at this time, they are very much dominated by uh, European or North American experts. And, you know, you may have one or two representatives from um, other regions, but it, it's really such a Western uh, preoccupation. But the one-worldism, uh, so that one world stemming from European priorities, mm-hmm. uh, was, was also connected very much in the early days to people like Julian Huxley, the first Director General of the organization, and this idea of humanism or scientific humanism or sometimes called secular humanism.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, um, I was surprised to, uh, to learn that he was the first director general precisely because of his pedigree, uh, his background and, you know, his famous grandfather and and, and indeed brother. Um, but they do seem from what I understand of Thomas Henry and also Aldous, mm-hmm. they, they they share some of the concerns for the future of humanity, much like Julian, um, but mm-hmm. also perhaps, um, you know, I, I was thinking about, you know, the influence of Darwin and, and, and Julian's ideas. And um, maybe there is something that we're uneasy with talking about or thinking about here. And, you know, in terms of the genesis of UNESCO, because because of Julian's kind of history of eugenics, right, and those ideas.
1: Of course. Yes. Yes. And he published some of his work on the philosophy Behind UNESCO, after he had finished his term as Director General, and I know at that point UNESCO wanted him to publish that independently rather than to be some imprint of the organisation. They were, I think, uncomfortable with with giving it uh, their imprimatur, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was he was a he was an obvious choice in some ways. Many of those UN organisations in the early days were set up by you know, um, British intellectuals who had done the sort of colonial service. Mm. I think Huxley had also been in Africa. Mm. He was a polymath um, interested, obviously, in ornithology, biology, but also philosophy. He was in, very in, interested in development schemes like the TVA or the Tennessee uh, Development Authority he was incredibly broad-ranging. He was also fascinated by archaeology and archaeological sites and archaeological methods, which was new to me, which you know I had sort of discovered in the archives. So he was a sort of world thinker, and UNESCO was dominated by these great statesmen in those early days. And he was somebody who was seen to bridge the sort of nature and, and culture and remember, too, mm-hmm. that... UNESCO was in, in very, very involved in science, um, nuclear science, for example. We don't see that so much anymore, but he was a very fitting choice in the early days. His term was only for a couple of years. It was cut short by by the Americans, basically, mm-hmm. who wanted their own person to, to uh, head up UNESCO. But that was the deal coming in, that he would only have, I think, a two-year term. Mm-hmm. But in that, he, he did... He did promote this vision of scientific humanism, which has come around, you know, in recent years. It's been uh, rejuvenated, as it were, as uh, a sort of philosophical and ethical commitment. So it hasn't gone away. You know, the roots of UNESCO are still there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, I understand that the roots of UNESCO also involved archaeology, but that has become less of a focus. Right. Um I, I guess for, for the listeners to understand this, um how would you describe I guess an archaeologist versus someone who's concerned with UNESCO style conservation? Is there is there a distinction right. here?
1: Well, yes, and I think there has been a the distinction has had impact. When, if I give you examples of when Huxley went to archaeological sites in the Middle East, he was promoting research. He was promoting excavation that mm-hmm. involved international collaboration. Um, some of it may have been very colonial but uh, and very British focused, but the idea was there was a mutual, um, possibly a mutual understanding between people, a cooperation that was happening, but it was about research. We were finding things like know, the origins of writing or, or settled life in the Middle East. And these new discoveries would also fuel a common humanity. You know, it, it fitted very nicely into his um, scientific humanism, which which was all about, you know, humanity or, as he would have said, mankind in charge of their own destiny. And that, um, you know, it wasn't always about religion. In fact, you know, he was trying to get away from, from those things. So actually having all these different cultures being excavated and on public display and uh, being discussed in public and then on museums, that museums would then create development and tourism. Archaeology was very much part of that, but it was seen as an intellectual and scientific endeavor. And so archaeologists themselves were writing histories of the world that he would then promote as UNESCO books. They were giving public lectures so there was a, a sort of university attachment, particularly uh, British archaeologists, of course, were his um, in his main circle, and many that were at University College London, and yeah. So it was really at the forefront, and these were all you know elite, high level men for the most part. Mm-hmm. But that that's very different from the conservation of sites, which is a particular uh, expertise around preservation that that could, can include everything from structural engineering to uh, restoration and art historical approaches. And, and that, certainly in UNESCO's history, that was quite different from uh, archaeological excavations and surveys. That was more about conserving standing monuments, so particularly architecture, and making those both stable and presentable to uh, public audiences. Mm. And I think we see that tension in the second chapter of the book, where I talk about both the archaeology and the conservation uh, after the flooding of the Aswan Dam, the saving of the Nubian Temple. That's a, it's a good example of how the archaeology and the conservation were were two very, very different uh, aspects of that project.
0: Okay, well, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Um, I've, I've spent some time in, in Madrid and um, bar barnon the most i guess non sequitur that i i found in mm-hmm. madrid was the temple of debod right which mm-hmm. is this mm-hmm. kind of reconstruction reconstructed egyptian mm-hmm. temple that is on a hill and it overlooks a, a beautiful park and people go there to drink beer <laughs> at sunsets right. nice. it's a beautiful mm-hmm. monument that seems out of place but that's uh, i guess intimately related to this this effort, um, by UNESCO to kind of conserve or preserve, I guess, some of those monuments. So could you, um, talk to us a little bit about, um, the Aswan Dam project and how temples like the Temple of Dabad, you know, ended up in Madrid?
1: Right. Well, the, the Spanish example was very, very interesting. Um, this was happening, you know, in Franco's regime. Mm-hmm. So, you know, many countries were supporting, yeah, supporting uh, financially and with expertise the work in Egypt, which was both archaeological, which no one ever talks about really, but all the survey and excavation of sites that were going to be lost when the water when the, the waters rose, and then the the conservation of temples that were already known or monuments that were already known. So. Sp- Spain was a contributor to that and like the United States and the Netherlands, Spain also got uh, in return for that participation and and help uh, from the Egyptian government. Well, actually also the countries are petitioning, were petitioning to have something in return. It was very much a, a system of partage, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't a holy um, string free gift, if you like. So they got in return Uh, one of those amazing temples. But what's so interesting Mm -hmm. there also, you know, this is the time of the Cold War. So we're talking, you know, late 50s, 60s. You know, Franco's regime, he sends archaeologists, he uses that as a sort of PR tactic to show that, you know, Spain is not isolated, that it's part of an an international endeavor and something to be proud of. Um, You know, the same happened uh, in Poland. There were a lot of Polish archaeologists uh, and conservatives working working on the project and you know pictures of the incredible Coptic churches that they were working on and restoring of course because of the uh, the link to Christianity was very welcome at home and so this was a promotion of uh, you know under the Soviet era a, a promotion of, of Polish identity abroad at a time when people couldn't leave the country mm. so you know it's full of full of contradictions like that. But it was, you know, despite the sort of politics, it did in a way galvanize UNESCO's founding mission of creating this one-world um, mm-hmm. archaeology or one-world heritage. It was the nascent um, stirring of something that has turned into the World Heritage Program um, of bringing scholars from different countries together on a single mission. And we will never see anything like that again. Mm. And interestingly, it was about conservation and salvage. It was not simply, it wasn't about the sort of branding and national competition that we see today. So it wasn't just about inscribing a site. It was about protecting and conserving sites and recording them, the research part, the archaeological part, researching them because they were going to vanish And having that for posterity and creating, you know, the resources, the materials, which scholars could work on for decades to come. So it was magnificent in many ways. Very much a Cold War project, very filled with tension. But, you know, again, we will never see, you know, it's like again.
0: Mm -hmm. Could could, could this example of the Aswan Dam project... Could this be an example of what you mean by UNESCO change from being something about um, discovery and transforming into something about recovery, you know, this exactly. idea of archaeology, yeah. research, and exactly. then preserving or conserving something? So the, sh- the, yes. the focus changes. And is this around the time when, when UNESCO, in your opinion, um, becomes more about the recovery instead of... Yes, Hardcore yes, research absolutely.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah, spot on. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. You know, this is their first foray into major field archaeology. And we're talking about covering the southern part of Egypt and then into Sudan. You know, it was massive. And, um, it, you know, it's incalculable how many sites were uh, recorded because neither country kept a register. But, um, you know, we can say thousands of sites, you know, are literally recorded out. And um, some were excavated, some were at least studied in some form, and now uh, much of that has been lost. Uh, But it is a time where UNESCO had to grapple with, you know, international field archaeology. The time, the expense... The competition between countries to get what concession to work on, who was going to get the goods, who was going to ship, you know, what back to their respective countries, what would stay in Egypt, what would stay in Sudan, uh, when it would be published, how much it would cost, again, how long that would take, and I think certainly the bureaucrats at UNESCO found this, from my archival research, found this very difficult and incalculable in a way. Mm -hmm. because, of course, you don't know what you're going to find. You don't know the extent of what you're going to find, what you're going to need to analyze. Certain predictions can be made, but, you know, it is a point of discovery. And, you know, that research on those materials is still ongoing in some respects. Some of it is still not published, which is another kind of scandal. But, you know, you had many nations also trying to work together, um, which, of course, causes other sorts of tensions, even Mm -hmm. between, you know, the number of, um, American institutions and universities involved. And then on the other side, you have the Abu Simbel temples. That what was needed there were some uh, plans. They t- Different nations and companies tended plans. Of course, you're dealing with companies who can give you a budget and an estimate and a time frame and they managed it and within a certain time frame that was finite. So it was a calculability about the conservation that could not be transferred to the archaeology. And and those two sides of the project were not really done in tandem. It was like they were all different projects. And many of the bureaucrats would say, you know, it's like we're we're not all in the same game here. So, you know, you've got engineers and consultants and business, (laughs) you know, making money. And then you've got academics.
0: Right, and I think in the next, um, in, in the next chapter, when you speak about the Mohenjo Daro campaign in Pakistan, I mean, it seems to be uh, the main point, or one of the main points of this chapter, mm-hmm. is that uh, you know UNESCO becomes about um, all about sending, or you know. Uh, Major part of its mission is is about instead of sending archaeologists to learn about things, or sending technocrats and exactly and kind of engineers, as you say, to to go do things and preserve things instead of field research.
1: Yes, yeah. So there is a major there is a major shift, and I think um, the Aswan uh, or the Nubian uh, monuments campaign. Mm-hmm. Was just such an exhaustive uh, mission, and they were also working in places like Raqqa, <laughs> in Syria, and um, and in Pakistan. And it became clear that they the organization couldn't marshal that huge international campaign machine again. That it was so exhaustive that every country would then be it would be a terrible precedent. Every country would then want something like that. So we see in in Syria and Pakistan, the idea that UNESCO puts it back on the state party, that they will organize that part, that they can enter into bilateral agreements with different other, you know, supporting participating nations or universities. It's up to them. UNESCO is not going to be the coordinator for these enormous, uh, you know, salvage regimes. Mm-hmm. And in Mahindra Daro very clearly, it's UNESCO – Wants to do technical assistance, and this comes at the same time when you have American director General. So people like Luther Evans say, you know, it's not about you know changing people's minds; it's about uh, technical assistance and uh, transfers. So you know, what consultants can we send out to to give us a finite uh, plan or or tender uh, a program? Of conservation of these particular sites it's going to take five years and you know is it $100,000 or $200,000 you know we want to work on this much more bureaucratic and business model that we can't be coordinating all sorts of international excavation we just need to save these sites as they are we don't want to fund new research new excavation we just really want to sort of prop up these monuments that we have and, and when you call an archaeological site a sort of monument, then you you are already signaling that you're not going to be doing ongoing research there. It's I already see. fixed.
0: Yeah, it's done and <laughs> game over for research. Do you think that this right, is... Right, right. Do you think this is um, uh, about the point in time in the organization when uh, the utopic vision of, I guess, the purpose of UNESCO that starts to change, or do we not see that until?
1: I think there's a. It's taken a major hit. Mm-hmm. The I, I mean, the, it's used a lot in the rhetoric, you know, changing the minds of men, and sure. and it, it, what you see are the director generals using uh, using that sort of language of um, of the sort of one world peace and and culture in their speeches. In their very sort of rousing um, speeches or calls to arms, but they're not actually um, they're not actually willing to put the resources in. They're hoping to outsource that, we might say, to uh, other other nations on these bilateral agreements. But also asking for more experts, it becomes more consultant driven. It becomes more national. With Mahendra Darrow, we start seeing the Chinese, for example, uh, offer to give support. But only if Chinese engineers are used, for example. So we get a very overt instance of state-based self-interest. And as I talk about in the book, you know, UNESCO began as an organisation with incredible statesmen like Julian Huxley. Um, you know, you have the sort of great and the good of Europe. Uh, you have poets. Uh, you have scientists. And then it turns very quickly into an organization of great states. That's how I describe it. So mm-hmm. it becomes about nation states and national interests. And you can see that in the difference between the countries that funded um, uh, the, the work in Egypt and Sudan versus who wants to be involved in the Darrow. And that's much more of an Asian focus. Um, the U.S. takes a long time to get involved to pay anything towards uh, mahendra Darrow, but does so as part of a Cold War initiative towards the end. Um, but, you know, Australia gets involved. You see much more a regional, uh, a regional interest in, you know, either giving some funds or uh, wanting to be involved. And the Dutch are one of the major contributors there because it's the Dutch water experts yeah. Uh, that we see all over the world, we see in Indonesia too, the Dutch are very interested in putting their companies in Pakistan because the issue with Mahindra Darrow was about, again, like the Nile, it was about uh, a river, changing the course of a river. So the same Dutch consultants that were based in Egypt then come to Pakistan. So it becomes big business.
0: Yeah, well, I, I was just about to go there. You know, the pessimist in me uh, thinks that this is very much about national profits as it is about national prestige instead of this Absolutely. kind of utopian, you know, vision of let's try to stop war. And as you pull up in the book in, in later chapters, um, UNESCO, this utopic organization in some ways that was developed to end war, has been kind of caught in the middle of conflict and, and disputes and and war right um, mm. we, we can go there um, in, in a minute but let's um, let's circle back here and talk about this idea of uh, national prestige um, and you know these UNESCO, Uh, Mm -hmm. sites and in your book, uh, on the chapter that deals with Venice, there's this nice picture of St. Mark's square. And in the background, there's a massive cruise ship. Right. And just a a day or so ago, the, there's a cruise ship that actually kind of lost control and, and ran into another boat, another tourist boat or or whatnot. But, you know, this is very much, you know, on, the public's mind right this idea of Mm. over tourism but also kind of exploiting the national monuments um, national Mm. cultural and Mm. natural monuments for economic gain and also national prestige so I was wondering if you could tell us what you think about about that idea in light of the UNESCO mission yes well
1: it's it's an obvious example to use Venice because it's one of the most egregious examples. And, you know, Italy sees itself as the capital of culture. It has the most sites on the world heritage list. And Venice has been in danger um, as I talk about in the book uh, probably for over a century, but it's certainly been um, more, more endangered through not through natural catastrophe Uh, necessarily, there was the flooding, uh, Mm -hmm. but actually through um, man-made decisions. And it's not just Venice, uh, the settlement, as it were, that is listed. It's also the lagoon. Mm -hmm. So the decisions to dredge the lagoon, uh, to allow for these larger ships to come in, uh, are all are all decisions to enhance tourism, not to consider the site, nor, very importantly, the people who live there. Because UNESCO, particularly in World Heritage, is also concerned you know, with things like sustainable development with communities. And I've been in Venice and lectured there and met with members of the community who are very vocal, whose lives are really ruined. The Venetians themselves, who are less and less each year because force, forced out for various reasons uh really you know their their lives or their and their livelihoods i think are really impinged upon by this sort of massive uh, international um, tourism effort that the that authorities in venice including of course private individuals uh, are involved in mm-hmm. now that site should have been discussed over many many committee meetings as a potential to be inscribed on the world heritage list in danger but Italy wields an enormous power in the World Heritage Arena. And for political reasons, you know, that has never happened. I wonder now, because this was a great fear that uh, an enormous boat would would crash into um, the harbour, uh, damage monuments there. I wonder if that's what it would take to have another discussion. I'd be very surprised if it was inscribed on the list of World Heritage in danger. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's... It, you know there are all sorts of factors why certain countries, um, yeah, have have their sites uh, listed or even discussed as being uh, potentially uh, in danger or threatened in some way, and of course all of this is is about generating tourism when it comes to Venice. And it's true that UNESCO did in its early days in the fifties, sixties, seventies try to use culture for particularly for developing nations, they tried to use that to enhance tourism. UNESCO is also involved in training for hospitality, countries like Jordan and India, to, as a way to um, boost or, you know, uplift nations through culture. But what we see now, and of course it's not necessarily in developing nations, it's in these, you know, rich and expert driven nations like France. Um, in Italy, Spain, mm-hmm. we see this use of World Heritage as a sort of brand without any of the conservation concern, preservation communities that we saw perhaps with Egypt uh, in the Nubian case. Now it's just a kind of raw national and economic promotion.
0: Mm-hmm. It's like an exploitation of national monuments for economic gain. and uh, you know I, yeah. I, I get the the financial appeal to this and and, and how something like a a, a site inscribed in, in the list could could lift up communities financially. but it seems like the conservation question is an afterthought, right? Uh, the, the ships barreling into the harbor.
1: Yeah, and an afterthought. we, we yeah. see that um, we see that reflected very, uh, almost quantitatively at the World Heritage Meeting. The, the couple of days that, um, or, or maybe even one day, that is devoted to conservation issues out of the 10 uh, where the World Heritage Committee meets and all the countries send their representatives if they can afford to um, – The conservation agenda items move very quickly. No one wants to really talk about them. Hmm. But when we get to the three days of World Heritage inscription, hours and hours will get expended on one site, arguing and lobbying to try and get that inscribed. So, you know, three days of intense, you know, and the room is full when it comes to the inscriptions and the press is there. It's incredible. It's a circus. But you want to talk about the conservation of the 100, you know, 1,000, sorry, plus sites on the list, nobody's in the room and no one's interested. No. I have seen empty rooms when Palmyra is being discussed, wow. you know. So, it, yes, and I don't think the public have that perception. Again, it's an example of the self-interest of states.
0: So how has the the inscription debates in these, um, in these meetings uh, or – the inscription debates that go on behind the scenes, um, are, are there any examples of how they have been corrupted by political or uh, military or financial means?
1: Mm, mm-hmm. in
0: terms of like international competition or self-interest?
1: Well, and now that the World Heritage meetings are live streamed and you can get them on YouTube or you can get them on the UNESCO website, People can see more transparently mm-hmm. uh, how how all of these uh, alliances are transacted. But I was fortunate enough to be pointed to one of my informants pointed me towards the example of Prava here, which is um, a temple site, uh, a Hindu temple that was inscribed on the world heritage List that's now in was inscribed, nominated by Cambodia, but is in disputed territory between. Thailand and Cambodia, and there was always talk that this had much to do with, you know, increasing Chinese infrastructure and access to the sites, um, that there may have been some oil deals that helped garner support from certain nations A kind of, um, you know, you help me on this, I will support your nomination. And I was pointed in the direction of WikiLeaks, of all things. Um, which I thought at the time by some diplomats in Paris and I thought at the time it was very conspiratorial, but they were absolutely right. A cable uh, something called Cablegate, which was a dump of um, uh, embassy uh, correspondence, appears on the WikiLeaks website and it shows very clearly how this one nominated temple site had had been caught, in an enormous array of political, economic, and military imperatives by a number of countries. Now, what we see is the United States and its involvement there. We we obviously don't have access to every country that was involved, but through the American correspondence, we can also see what other nations um, were doing. So you see the American interest if they support Cambodia, you know, that they want to get um, certain companies established there, but they're also slightly worried because um, they have a military, military advantage uh, and a, an air force base in Thailand. So mm-hmm. they want to keep the Thais happy. So this is a great example that I'm sure there are many, many others that you could, um, that you could use, but this one we just happened to be fortunate enough to To see the interstices being discussed and then uh, captured on, on WikiLeaks.
0: So what is your uh, prognosis, I guess, of uh, the future of UNESCO and its methods for inscribing sites? Are, are you optimistic uh, um, for change well- or...? Do the conflicts and the destructions of sites like the the Buddhas that were destroyed, the sites uh, as you mentioned, mm. the Palmyra sites and Aleppo? Um, mm. Do you have a lot of optimism uh, that the course will be corrected?
1: I think it's very difficult to go back after um, after this sort of progression of. Um, state-based self-interest mm-hmm. uh, and and that countries are not willing to give money for conservation like they did with the Nubian campaign or even with Borobudur saving that temple or even a little bit with Mahindra um, I think given the financial constraints the organisation is incredibly cash strapped it's cut positions it's had to um, because of the hundreds of millions of dollars that they would have received had the United States paid its dues. And I don't see that being rectified, <laughs> given right. that the U.S. is withdrawn. So this is an organization, I have a lot of sympathy, you know, they're trying to do more and more with less and less. And the countries never ease up on the sorts of requests that they put on um, Paris head office. They want, you know, the countries themselves, the member states, want more and more help from UNESCO. They want more missions sent out, more advice, more expertise. Studies done, and yet you know when I first went to Paris, there were more than seventy people employed in the World Heritage Center. Now there's about twenty, and, wow. and the positions are being cut all the time. How is this possible? So they are also living on consultants and volunteers to to staff. I mean, I have students that go um, that are sent by Stanford to also um, help with the World Heritage Committee, for example. So there's there's enormous pressure on on those people. And also, you know, they have a lot of pressure exerted by the countries directly because they want those inscriptions. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a very tense atmosphere. Now, are the countries going to uh, ease up on the numbers of inscriptions? Absolutely not. This is a suggestion that's been uh, put forward many times, and the countries will not uh you know, will will not cease from inscribing and nominating more and more sites. And they're very aggressive about it. Um China and Japan, France. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're not going to stop. So so the mechanism um is very overstretched. The desire is enormous and growing. And uh, you know, are people wanting to conserve and help, you know, countries like Yemen? I, I don't see any evidence of it. You know, it's um, There's no money Yemen there. Can't even, well, Yemen doesn't even can't even afford, obviously, in the middle of this horrific conflict to send a delegation to even report on the status of its world heritage sites. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, there is no censure either. It's a great example of politics. There's no censure because of the destruction um, you know that is largely led by a coalition including Saudi Arabia, the UK, the US, and others. There's no discussion of that because these are the powerful member states. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if something happens in the Democratic Rep- Republic of Congo, everybody is named and shamed. Mm. So So there's you know the, the countries also see a great hypocrisy that's being played out there too. I am not very optimistic. I I think it, it started off as a wonderful mission, albeit with its colonial um, right. uh, overtures. Uh, but there was a kernel of something very worthwhile there. And it could be, again, but the fundamental structures are leading us in this particular um, direction. And I, it's hard to see how that can be rectified. And it's up to the member states. They are, after all, the United Nations. Mm-hmm. You know, it's up to countries, not some bureaucrats in Paris to change things.
0: Yeah, they, unfortunately, I think they've all, you know, already put the cup up to their lips and tasted how sweet all of the tourism dollars are that come with sure. with an inscription. And, you know, the, the ROI, the rate of return on um, on getting a site on that list is probably significant, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I hate
0: hate to be a pessimist about this, but it seems that that's kind of a uh, very important motivating factor uh, behind this, if not, you know, the most important one.
1: Well, I think it has been, but I would also say something else to watch out for, which is that UNESCO inscription is now being used as a, a kind of territorial marker or a, a way of inscribing a particular version of history from one country to another. Mm. In fact, inciting a kind of conflict. Prava here is one example from 2008 that sparked a, a war, a border war between Thailand and Cambodia, but we see the same things happening particularly with China and Japan. Uh, so inciting, in, inscribing and inciting at the same time particular versions of the Second World War um, and we, it's not just in the World Heritage List but the list of intangible culture so there's a kind of tip for tat going on between countries as well that's very very unhelpful um, you see a country like Turkey nominating Ani which is an Armenian site mm-hmm. uh, you know there, there are there are sort of flashpoints and remember I said you have a whole list of um, sites on your tentative list the government is choosing which ones to put forward and how to frame those so it's the economic, the the territorial, um, the political issues tied to sovereignty. Um, I think I think there's a lot to watch in that dynamic going forward. And again, that is up to the member states to decide how to use the list.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, well, yeah. Look, we're getting a, a little bit <laughs> <laughs> close to our time here, and um, but I, I guess what I was thinking about also is is not just the national and the financial, but also kind of um, the religious disputes, um, the non right. non state actors. Right. I guess what first opened right. my eyes to this uh, was the destruction of the the, the large Buddhist mm. the Bamiyan mm. statues. Yeah. These kind of non state agents can effectively use UNESCO heritage sites as as hostages to get their demands not only heard but um, satisfied. And so there's the, kind of that element of uh, of this puzzle too, unfortunately.
1: Yes, yes, you're right. But I also think there's a way in which the overprivileging of monuments and the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the, the undermining of people and communities and other sort of aid mm-hmm. um, has also created and exacerbated these tensions. Um, and I think if things had been done differently, we may be in a different situation. And uh, I, I think the idea of living culture and living communities, rather than always this very monumental, you know, we care more about things than people attitude, has not has really not helped. And that goes back to uh, my initial points that supporting research and, you know, people-to-people transfers, as it were, and cultural exchanges and also the living aspects of heritage rather than just saying, well, we only care about the classical past like Palmyra in the Middle East. You know, I, that there's a lot of evidence now that suggests that, understandably, people are concerned about that, that that's not... That's not a helpful attitude and it's a very Western and imperial attitude. And we did have, we did have glimmers of that also with Aswan when Nubian heritage was, uh, was at risk. And, you know, the last few hundred years of an incredible, uh, tradition, architectural tradition, and there just wasn't the interest to record and, and salvage that because living people weren't deemed as important or magisterial as the pharaohs. And that, that just that's just not an attitude that we can sustain today. I just don't think that's ethical or appropriate. And I, I'm sure UNESCO is m- making all sorts of efforts, and I know it has with its different conventions, to do that. But that's also part of the reason that these disciplines like archaeology and anthropology um, are, are, are just as important now mm-hmm. to, to include so that it can't just be about cathedrals and churches and palaces and statues that we deem um, aesthetically pleasing.
0: Mm. It reminds me of the uh, Thomas Paine attack on Edmund Burke, where he, you know, rails against Burke for, um, I I guess, promoting the authority of the dead over the rights and freedoms of the living, right, in the words of uh, Paine.
1: And they're all going back to right at the beginning of this interview when we talked about heritage and history. Mm-hmm. You know, it's who deems what important. And there are heritage sites that are living sites for people that are, are temples and mosques and places of worship and places of visitation. And the idea that we just deem something, particularly in the Middle East or, or in Europe, or something that has a classical or what we imagine to have some sort of Western resonance, as opposed to the sites that people themselves value on the ground, and that's the, that's the work and the research that needs to be done, particularly in the Middle East, mm-hmm. that, that we learn we learn rather than just impose our values. So there is work to be done, and there's real research to be done that I think could be um, that I know some of my colleagues that w- you know we are talking about that needs support and that um, that could have a real impact.
0: Well, um, I I hope. That this work continues, and I hope that we get a chance to speak more about this in the future, especially if, you know within the the international context. Um, and I hope you know you continue to do this this work. Uh, so. Um, thank
1: look, you, Jeremy. Look, thank you
0: for your time and thanks for chatting with us. I think your book is is really interesting. Uh, obviously, uh, you know this this thank conversation you. I think could go on. So uh, thanks again for your time and um, good luck to you uh, in your travels and in your work.
1: Thank you. Very kind. Thanks.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of All Over the Place. Please subscribe to our newsletter to receive emails with travel related news, book recommendations and resources from around the world. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Links can be found at allovertheplacepodcast.com. next time. Farewell.